Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to Arkansas AgCast for July 16th. I'm your host, Ashlyn Ussery. This week, we are joined by Dr. Julie Robinson, who tells us about the mission and benefits of LEAD AR. We also chat with Brian Day about transportation improvements made by the Little Rock Port Authority and Rusty Rumley, Senior Staff Attorney for the National Agriculture Law Center. Enrollment is underway for the University of Arkansas Cooperative Extension Services Leadership Development Program. Ken Moore visited with Dr. Julie Robinson about the importance of this program. I'm Ken Moore, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, we're speaking with Dr. Julie Robinson. Julie is an associate professor of leadership for the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture Cooperative Extension Service. Julie, it's great to visit with you this morning. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Ken. I'm excited to get the opportunity to chat with you. Julie, as uh, head of uh, LEADAR, for the benefit of our listeners to this edition of AgCast who are not familiar with with the program, uh, please just briefly explain the history of LEADAR and your mission with this program. Absolutely. So LEADAR was founded in 1984 in uh, in Arkansas, and it was originally modeled after the Kellogg Foundation's leadership training program. And so in 1984, after a, a national visit to, with a larger group, um, a couple of our folks came back and started the LEADAR program. And so we've been going ever since for 36 years, and it's a two-year leadership development program designed to broaden our Kansans' understanding of critical issues and opportunities facing our state. And um, LEADAR strengthens our participants' knowledge, skills, and their network, and also empowers them to positively impact their communities and advocate for that long-term economic development. And so throughout that two years, there are bi-monthly or every other month face-to-face seminars, and we're uh, beginning to incorporate more of that virtual or uh, distance uh, components into the program as the technology and the connectivity becomes more and more available. We also look holistically, not just at the individual and developing them and equipping them with those knowledge, skills, and ability and network, but we also uh, expose them to a national and even a global view with international and national study tours. And then there's also a community service project component that really kind of culminates with everything that they learn throughout the program and gives them an opportunity to give back to that community that they're living with or that they're serving. Fantastic. An outstanding leadership development program for for many of our Arkansas professionals. Can I go into a little more detail about the type of professionals who've participated in this program in the past and and that you attempt to reach. I know it's quite a broad spectrum. It it is. So really anyone who who is interested in developing themselves and improving and contributing to their communities, but we've had leaders in businesses and communities throughout Arkansas, um, especially in those rural and agricultural areas, but past participants include educators, farmers, advocates, bankers, state legislators, uh, on both sides of the aisles, lawyers, mayors, quorum court, 
members, city council members, school board members, small business owners, and, and many more. You're absolutely right. It's a very broad spectrum. Uh, certainly, and we've had uh, a number of our uh, staff members, my colleagues, over the last number of years that uh, have signed up to participate as well, and, and, I, and they come back and say it was worth the investment. Talk about the investment required. I think you mentioned a moment ago it is a two-year program, so there is an investment of time, but uh, what what is required of the participants? Absolutely, and I, I do want to touch on some of uh, your Farm Bureau colleagues have been uh, some of our shining stars come out come out of the program, and we definitely always appreciate Farm Bureau's support. But the uh, so the the question that most people automatically go to is what's the cost? So the cost just right off the bat is $3,000 to participate, and that covers all of your costs and expenses for the entire two-year program, including your seminars and your travel uh, for international and for that national trip. So that tends to be the first thing that, that people ask about. But we do have a very strict attendance policy for those face-to-face -face sessions. And I know that with everything with COVID-19, we continue to uh, adjust our face-to-face -face session plans. And we, 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 none of us know how all of this is going to shake out. And so that kind of continues to be fluid. But we just definitely want people to know that the safety of our participants and our program staff and the communities that we interact with in those face-to-face -face seminars are the are our highest priority. Um, but we, like I said, we do have a very strict attendance policy for the face-to-face -face sessions, but we'll also have a pretty strict participation policy for those virtual sessions as well. And so there is some travel involved. We go all over the state, look at um, all four corners of the state and places in between. And so there, there is quite a bit of travel. And But we definitely want you to also be engaged while you're there as well. And then, like I said, that national studies trip is about a week long, and the international studies trip is not quite two weeks. It's typically been about 11 days. And then, of course, there are some assignments in between, uh, reading and uh, maybe a little bit of homework if uh, you want to call it something else, but that's probably what most of us would align it with is kind of homework. But just a little bit of introspective personal development on your, on your own time. And then there's that community service project that really you'll work on throughout the entire two years. And and that's why you work on it through the whole two years is because we we help you not uh we help you as you develop it, conduct your needs assessment, plan and implement that community service project. Wow. Excellent. I know it's a life changing experience uh, once uh, your participants graduate after two years. And, <laughs> and certainly, their employers, wherever they may work, whether they're self employed or, or take off uh, time from work, uh, their employers see and re realize the benefit of having their employees go through this, don't they? Absolutely. We, we certainly hope so. And a lot of Employers invest in their employees, and Farm Bureau has been another uh, excellent example of investing in their own folks, but also in the community members that they serve. And Extension does the does the same with their employees. But they, um, uh, 
uh, hope, we hope that employers see see the benefit of their folks going through the program and bringing that back and not only sharing the content, but also their improved skills and awareness and being able to help better serve the, the, the places where they work, the places where they live, um, even maybe even in their own family uh, with some of uh, their improved communication skills. <laughs> mm -hmm. No question. Now, you mentioned I think it's kind of a, a perk uh, and, and a hook, if you will, uh, for <laughs> participants of that international uh, tour that you take. Uh, that you referenced, uh, where are you going to mm -hmm. be going? Where's the next class going to be going uh, abroad this year? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Of course, like we mentioned, everything with COVID-19, that will certainly be a uh, something that we have to contend with. Now, the international trip will not take place until 2022. Okay. So we've got okay. a little bit of time for hopefully things to become a little bit safer. But really the international trip location is not determined until much closer to time to go. And a lot of that is because mm. we want to choose a location that is relevant at the time. So it is, uh, uh, sorry. So because it is an opportunity for people, for the participants in the program, um, to meet with broad array of leaders, um, and they get to meet with ambassadors, farmers, government ministers, uh, corporate executives, nonprofit leaders, and many other stakeholders. But we also try to pick a place that um, is got a very recent and relevant global issue uh, going on that really gives us an opportunity to take a look at those political dynamics, um, economics, trade. So this last group um, went to Belgium and the Netherlands, and really a lot of the focus during that time was the was Brexit, so with okay. the UK leaving the European Union. So that was why that uh, location was selected. Um, and so we'll learn more. Really, the locations are selected um, with the approval of our administration, but based on current events, the learning opportunities that are available, and of course our in-service, or sorry, our in-country resources that we have available. All right. Well, thanks for clarifying that, and I know it'll be an exciting trip and a very meaningful trip uh, once you are <laughs> able to uh, determine where you're going to go. I know you've gone all over Europe in the past, and and really the the, the world. Uh, and I hear about that from my colleagues when they return. That, that's kind of a <laughs> yeah. highlight of the whole class, I think. But uh, just think the camaraderie so. that the uh, participants develop, too. I mean, these are all professionals from all walks of life, and yet they spend two years together through going through LIDAR. And isn't there a bond and, a, and friendships that are made that are long, lifelong lasting? Oh, absolutely. So the, the benefit of any leadership program is the networking that you get to do. And so our folks not only get to network with the community members that they engage with in our seminars, but they spend a lot of quality time together. And between travel and just days at uh, touring around the state, being maybe stuck in a van together for long car mm -hmm. rides, although we, we try not to have too long car rides. But, you know, th there are just many activities and opportunities over that two-year period, and their bond really 
people. And we've had, I, I've heard quotes from LIDAR alumni that their, their class members were, are lifelong friends and still some of their best friends, and they continue to be in touch with each other and really rely on each other. And it even extends beyond their, their class that, and their cohort that they went through. So it's really quite remarkable and a fantastic resource for any for any LEADAR alum to have. And there again, it goes even beyond their class and their cohort. They, they have a network of 500 plus leaders across wow. the state that go all the way back to 1984. So there are some folks that really have have been around for a while, and so even if they, uh, you know, even if they maybe can't connect you with any sort of resource that you may be looking for, they definitely have a wealth of knowledge to share. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Well, now I know you've got a new class that uh, you're uh, signing people up for right now. When does yes, it sir. begin? And talk about uh, sign up and anyone listening to our conversation, how they can go about doing that if they're interested. Absolutely. So our class 19 applications are open. They close pretty soon, but the application is all online and virtual. So you can go to uaex.edu backslash leadar, L-E-A-D-A-R, and the application link is there along with our tentative schedules. So we've got our ideal in a non-COVID-19 world schedule, but then we've got our realistic COVID-19 <laughs> schedule. And so our face-to-face -face sessions are likely not going to be able to start until 2021, but we will implement some of those virtual learning sessions uh, starting in the fall, so around September or October mm -hmm. after, the first, after, after the class is announced. All right. All right. Well, just visit that website link then. Uh, that uh, Julie just mentioned if you're interested in signing up uh, for the next class of LIDAR. Julie, uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing uh, all about LIDAR with our uh, listeners today on AgCast, and uh, best of luck as you uh, begin this next class. I know it's going to be exciting, and uh, as we all go through uh, the distancing and, and the challenges that the uh, pandemic has presented, I know you'll hopefully get a good class of professionals that uh, will go through with you. Absolutely. We we need good leaders now more than more than ever and uh so I think this would be a great opportunity for folks to to improve upon the their existing leadership skills. We've been talking with Dr. Julie Robinson. She is an associate professor of leadership for the uh, University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture Cooperative Extension Service. On this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Next, Greg Patterson is joined by Rusty Rumley, the senior staff attorney for the National Agriculture Law Center at the University of Arkansas, to discuss the value of getting a written legal document when leasing land for agriculture. This is Greg Patterson with Arkansas Farm Bureau, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, we're going to be speaking with Rusty Rumley. He is a senior staff attorney for the National Ag. <laughs> Let's start that again. <laughs> Three, two, one. This is Greg Patterson, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, we're going to be speaking with Rusty Rumley. Rusty is a senior staff attorney with the National Ag Law Center that's based in Fayetteville. And Rusty, welcome. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about ag 
land leasing. And and I do that because I know from from my days uh, back back in the country, uh, a lot of these um, you know leases were handshakes between people, and I'm sure that still exists. And if, but from a legal perspective, um, what what should uh, landowners be doing? Well, the old handshake leases, or what we call them in the law, is an oral lease. Those things are still alive and well. Um, they're not quite as prevalent as they used to be, and there's some good reasons for that. I mean, it's just as time has gone on, you know, with your typical situation that you see here in Arkansas, it's a, it may be an older couple or a widow that's the current landowner and leasing to a tenant, and you may have the farmer may have the best working relationship with that landowner. You know they may have had, and the, the things I hear is, you know, well, I've I've leased from Witta Johnson for 30 years, and I've never had any issues. Her heart's as good as gold. And I said, well, that's that's wonderful. You know, how old is Widow Johnson? And if something happens to Widow Johnson, how good is your relationship with her children? And do you right. know her children? And you know. Lou Johnson might be a great lady, but maybe her son has, you know, been a frequent and long-term resident of the Arkansas penal system. You know, it may not be, you you may not have that same relationship with exactly. the with the heirs of the of the landowner, and we see all kinds of issues that can come up. You know, maybe because you take such great care of the land, you do a lot of upkeep maybe your rental rate is a little bit lower than what is the, the average rental rate in the county. Well, the, when the heirs take it over, all they see is that you were giving mama less money for the land than what other people were getting. So right. they're wanting to know, well, were you taking advantage of a little old lady? They don't know necessarily know that there's this history where she cut you a better rate because – you know, you were such a great tenant. So there are all kinds of issues that can pop up with these. Uh, sometimes we see a, a things that are just, they're honest disputes. I mean, maybe the landlord and the tenant talked about a particular situation, and they talked about it 15 years ago. Now, 15 years later, neither one of them really remember what they talked about. Or maybe they both remember vividly, and it just happens to be exactly opposite of what the other person remembers. Sure. So there's just there's a lot of issues you can get into with the oral leases and it's most people are they're trying to avoid them now if they can. Is is there any do you have any feel, I'm sure there's no statistics on it, do you have any feel for how you know, what percentage of those types of agreements still exist in the state or is that that's something that nobody really pays attention to? It's it's hard to tell and it usually it varies area by area. Um, there's been kind of a push to get away from them uh, anymore, especially signing up for FSA programs. Uh, with some of the programs, the, the FSA office will ask for some kind of proof of a rental agreement. So, that, I mean, you'll have people that it may be largely oral, but they might have a, uh, a one-page lease just acknowledging that there is a, a lease going on for the next, you know, growing season. Um, 
but it's really hard to tell on that. And what you'll see is you'll see pockets where there will be a lot of oral leases that are prevalent in this area. And then, you know, another area, there will be a lot more written leases. So, so what you're saying is one of the advantages of having the written legal lease is access to uh, federal programs that are out there, whether it's an NRCS program or a, you know, FSA program, whatever it happens to be, sometimes the feds are going to require that there be some sort of documentation for the, the farmer to be involved in a particular federal program. Yeah, and it, that's all going to be program specific. Um, I would think that there would also be some instances where you have an out-of-state landowner who is leasing land, and and obviously that would be advantageous too to have some written document. Yeah, uh, and sometimes you'll you'll get different things. Hey, it would be advantageous for that. Sometimes you'll have people that they lived in the area most of their lives. They've decided to get out of farming, and they've got grandchildren in, say, Iowa, and they want to move out of state. You know, they've moved up to Iowa, but they still own their farmland in Arkansas. And you'll still see oral leases with those people just because they have that connection. They know the people that they're leasing it to. But when something happens to them and their child, you know, is, living in Iowa inherits the land, they don't they don't have that same relationship. So having something down on paper saying that this is how this lease works is is going to be really important. So um another thing could be other uses of that land. For instance, we all know that that Arkansas is a great duck hunting um state and and so not only can you have a crop on a field but during the um post-harvest time when duck season comes on, you can you can lease land for, for duck hunting as well, ag land. So that's an interesting thing. In Arkansas, if you have an oral lease, the hunting rights don't convey with it. So if you have an oral lease, you can't hunt on it, but the landowner could rent those hunting rights out. So you, you may have other people in the field that you rented after harvest doing your duck hunting for you. So if, if you're wanting the uh if you're wanting to be able to duck hunt on that land as well, you better get a written lease and it better say in there that you've got the rights to to duck hunt on it. What are what are maybe uh do you have an anecdotal story or something where um you know something just totally messed up as far as because it was a handshake? Oh, man. I mean, it's one of those things you hear horror stories about it. Um, let's see. I actually heard one this week. It was a, a person. They had reached out to their attorney on right before the 4th of July and said that, you know, they wanted to get out of the lease. They were ready to, to sell their land. You know, it was an oral lease. Sure. Well, the, there's a problem with that. In Arkansas, you have to give written notice by certified mail before, on or before June 30th to cancel the lease. Oh, okay. So if you're assuming, if you assume that it's your normal handshake lease that goes from January 1st to December 31st, in order to terminate that lease for the 2021 calendar year, 
they would have had to send a written letter before June 30th to cancel it. But now, since they failed to meet the date, if they send in notice, and then you know, if the per- other person decides they're willing to leave, they can they, they could leave. But right. if, that, if the current tenant says no, I want to stay, then the earliest they could kick them off the land would be January 1st of 2022. <laughs> so their their lease just went up for a, a whole other year because they missed the the date to to send in notice of cancellation. You have well, to send in six months notice to cancel a world lease in Arkansas. You know, that's an interesting point, Rusty. And and just in the short amount of time we've been speaking, you've brought up several instances of, of what ifs and, you know, things that people need to pay attention to, the, the June 30th date that you're mentioning. So what what is your – I mean, the National Ag, uh, Ag Law Policy Center has has – probably uh, some really good advice for people here in Arkansas as well as the nation. What would that advice be to folks? Go to a lawyer, get a lease written up. It's generally not expensive to get that done. You can find lots of lease forms online. You might even take a look up a couple of lease forms online, find the things you like the best, and then take it to a lawyer and spend a one, two, three hundred bucks at most, and you know, have them go over it, have them combine it, and then you can just have them leave the names blank. And then if you want to reuse that lease in the future, you know, just fill in someone else's name on it, put a different rental rate, and you know, you can reuse that lease form. Every five or ten years, it might not be a bad idea to take it back to an attorney and have them go over it again and see if there's been any changes in the law but it's a good way to buy yourself some insurance that if things do go wrong, you can resolve the the lease dispute in a way that doesn't involve eh, a very expensive lawsuit. Well, we've been talking with Rusty Rumley today. He's a senior staff attorney with the uh, National uh, Ag Law Center that's based in Fayetteville. Anything that we missed um in regards to to land leases that we should talk about? Uh, Not that I can think of. I think we covered the waterfront pretty well. Rusty, thank you so much for spending time with us uh, discussing ag land leases today. And uh, we really appreciate the work that's done at the National Ag Law Policy Center. And is there a website folks can go to if they want to know more about uh, the National Ag Law Policy Center. Yeah, we have our website. It's uh, nationalaglawcenter.org, and we actually have a lot of specific uh, material in there for land leasing that's designed for the general public. I mean, you can go in there, learn about leasing, learn about what things you want in a lease, educate yourself, and then you can save yourself a lot of money when you go to that attorney because you kind of know what you want on the front end. Rusty, thank you so much for spending time with us today on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate it. Finally, Ken Moore talks with Brian Day, Executive Director of the Little Rock Port Authority, about a project that is set to improve transportation and provide new job opportunities for Arkansans. I'm Ken Moore, and this week I have the pleasure of speaking with uh, Brian Day. Brian is the Executive Director of the Little Rock Port Authority, 
And uh, a week ago, they shared and released some exciting news uh, about $11 million in investments to support transportation infrastructure improvements at the port. Uh, This, according to their uh, release, will uh, create as many as 1,500 new jobs. Uh, Exciting news, Mr. Day. Uh, If you will, just kind of talk about uh, this uh, uh, investment, this $11 million investment, and how uh, you plan over time to make these infrastructure improvements. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on today. Um, A little background on that capital investment project. So about a year ago, working with uh, Governor Hutchinson and his team, Mayor Frank Scott and his team, the Little Rock Chamber of Commerce, uh, we were able to attract uh, CZ USA, a Czech Republic gun manufacturer who agreed to come and build their North American gun manufacturing plant here at the Port of Little Rock. At about the same time, working with the Little Rock Regional Chamber of Commerce, we attracted a company called HMS Plastics to come to the Port of Little Rock reclaim an old building and begin doing production of plastic tubs and bins for most major box retailers around the country. And then last winter, we attracted Amazon to come and build a 4 million square foot distribution facility here at the port. What that means, Ken, is that we're going to add about 3,500 jobs to the port of Little Rock, and we quickly realized that the existing infrastructure would not support all of that traffic. So we reached out to the state, to the city, to the county, to the federal government, to some of our private partners, and we put together this infrastructure package to make a little over $11 million worth of improvements to our road network. That will include things like widening Bush Dam to four lanes and adding traffic signals. That will include things like making Zuber Road a three-lane road with uh, dedicated turn lanes. That will mean punching through Pratt-Rimmel Road to provide another exit to the interstate. And most importantly for us, it will involve putting safety measures on our two primary railroad crossings. These improvements, when done, will actually set the Port of Little Rock up for future investment because we've continued to buy land and grow our inventory. And with this road network that a bunch of people came together to help us build, it sets us up with these shovel-ready sites to continue attracting industry to Little Rock. That's outstanding. That's that's an exciting uh, announcement. And uh, if you will, just kind of go beyond uh, and explain just how important our port in Little Rock is, uh, uh, because uh, it's a major, I would think, uh, hub. You know, between uh, say St. Louis, Memphis, all the way down to New Orleans for the transportation of many, many goods, including agricultural uh, products. You know, that's a, that's another that, – thank you for that opportunity. The Port of Little Rock is a critical economic development engine and transportation hub for all of central Arkansas. Uh, we were created 60 years ago by the city of Little Rock. Our sole purpose was to grow jobs for Little Rock and central Arkansas. Fast forward today, we're we're almost we're a little over 4,000 acres in size. We have 42 businesses from five countries that are located here. Those 42 businesses, when these three that I mentioned earlier are up and running, they're going to employ about 8,000 people. That's the size of many small cities. Those 8,000 people we know from a recent study will come from about 23 counties. 
So a third of the state of Arkansas sends someone to the Port of Little Rock every day to make a living. And these are high-paying jobs, Ken. The average wage out here is 1850. These are manufacturing jobs that take advantage of the Arkansas River to move resources up and down in an economical fashion. We also have a short-line railroad that serves both the Union Pacific and the Burlington Northern so that our industries have choice about moving their goods and products. We're right on the interstate. Take a left, and you can be in Dallas this afternoon. Take a right, you can be in Memphis. And then, of course, we're real close to the airport. So we have all four major uh, transportation logistic opportunities right here at the port. And those things that move up and down the river, it is agricultural products, fertilizer, uh, rock. We're loading rock right now to send south for a Corps of Engineers project. Uh, Wellspun, our largest employer, uh, brings steel coils from around the world to make gas and pipe, water pipe for industry. Um, the port is incredibly important, and it provides those logistic opportunities for industries who might not be able to afford it otherwise. The Arkansas River, in the, in, in the bigger picture, a lot of grain comes down the river from eastern Colorado, Kansas, northern Texas that moves to the Gulf and to the world beyond. Our, our Arkansas has its own grain basket, and, and some of the larger industries like Ricelands and producers use the river to move those commodities. So we're very fortunate to have it, and most people don't realize how important it is, but we were lucky. Little Rock, Central Arkansas, the state is lucky to have this incredible resource that runs right down the middle of our of our community. Well, as you know, agricultural exports are vital to the health of our uh, state and agricultural economy, and we must be able to transport them to these foreign markets. And uh, you play, uh, our port does, a major, major role in getting them there, doesn't it? We do, and, and I would be remiss if I didn't also mention there are a number of other public and private ports on the river. Our friends with Oakley Transportation, they play a major role in moving grain up and down the river. Our friends at Fort Smith, our friends up in Muskogee and Tulsa, all of those folks do play a critical role in not only bringing fertilizer up to help the crops grow, but to bring the crops down in in an affordable fashion so that they can distribute them not only domestically but internationally so that we can help support those farm families, help keep agricultural competitive, and then provide those resources to industries, uh, producers that are looking to, for access to those cro- those crops and commodities. It is very important, and um, and a lot of people take advantage of it, but on the same t- time, and you said earlier, a lot of people don't really know what we have going for us. Well, how are uh, how are you adjusting to and, and dealing with the uh, restrictions that we're all facing uh, because of the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, earlier, uh, we all know that uh, when the uh, virus broke out uh, several months ago, many, many, many jobs were lost. Many people were furloughed in different types of uh, working environments. Now we're trying to reopen the state and uh, put people back to work, but how is the port dealing with this? So it's had an impact, and uh, we're still trying to figure out the best way to deal, deal with it um, um, internally and externally. I think I, I would be remiss if I didn't also mention, you know, last year the Arkansas River had a historic flood oh, yeah. um, that impacted us. Um, about the time the pandemic 
reared its ugly head. Uh, gas and oil prices collapsed. That's always a barometer for heavy industry and manufacturing. So we've struggled um, as, a, as a public port authority. Many of our industries have laid off or shut down temporarily because of the virus, the flood, the, the, the uh, price of oil. But you know what? I, I've said this before, and our Kansans are resilient. And, you know, if you look back mm -hmm. in 2008 when we had the, the financial correction, different reasons, you know, Arkansas was a state that stayed pretty consistent towards the top in terms of recovery. And I think I feel that way here. You know, we're going to be fine as a community. It's We're going to have to learn some new ways to operate, learn some new ways to work. But the jobs are coming back. You know, I mentioned earlier on this podcast, we have Wonderful. three manufacturers that are going to open and add 3,000 jobs to our community, that's huge. So we're mm -hmm. going to be fine, and I think it's probably going to take the rest of this year for us to return to some sense of normal, but the port's going to be okay. Our industries are going to be okay, and I think we're, we're, we're hiring. I mean, the, the port as a whole, the, the industrial park as a whole is hiring, so there's opportunity out here because manufacturing remains viable uh, to the world stage. I'm glad you referenced last year's historic flood, too. I was going to try to uh, have you comment on that uh, because we all uh, had to deal with that one year ago, and uh, it takes a long time to recover. I mean, the, the river levels uh, receded, but uh, I'm sure it took quite some time for, for you to recover there at the ports. Uh, put that in perspective because, you know, people not affiliated with it or who did not live in the flood zone may not really understand just how devastating that was at the time. It was devastating, and um, it reminded us that uh, no matter how hard man plans to protect these things, Mother Nature's still in charge. Now, with that said, I think the Corps of Engineers did a remarkable job trying to manage the water. There were communities that unfortunately were negatively impacted some of our colleagues on the river were negatively impacted, um, and some of us had minimal impacts. We are still digging out from the flood. The Corps of Engineers continues to dredge the channel to return it to its nine-foot depth. The Coast Guard continues to place buoys as we clear debris and, and snags from the river. Um, my colleagues, particularly farther north or west up the river, Tulsa, Muskogee, still making major repairs uh, to their facilities. Um, industry rebounded pretty quickly. Um, we were shut down for about eight weeks uh, with the flood and with the impact. The cost of the to the state is, is hard to calculate, but we think we're probably um, several hundred millions of dollars of lost jobs, lost commodities, um, but we're back and we're moving commodities again like we were, but we are still doing a little bit of recovery. The good news is we did not have the snow melt, the heavy rains this spring. We're better prepared for um, um, future events. We've, we've armored some of our facilities. So I think that all that said, uh, we learned from Mother Nature's lessons, and if it happens again, we'll be able to recover a little bit more quickly. Good news. Good news. Well, I want to let you talk just a little more in depth about uh, the exciting news. You've got several major employers coming to the port. 
authority there. But uh, hey, when you mention the name Amazon, that that's huge worldwide. And uh, you said you know what, four thousand square feet. Uh, four million square four, feet. Four million square feet. Excuse me, I didn't write that down correctly. That's huge, uh, Brian. Just talk about having Amazon right here in Little Rock. Well, it is, and I, I think that there's been some watershed moments at the port over our history. Uh, when the interstate was built, that was the watershed moment. When Wellspun, which is our first international uh, business located here in 2008, that was a watershed moment. And now that Amazon has chosen the port of Little Rock to locate a a major distribution facility, that is a watershed moment. It will draw attention to the port. We will get uh, inquiries from other distributors, other manufacturers, other industries wanting to know what's going on, wanting to know why Amazon chose us. So this community is very lucky to have Amazon. We're very proud to have Amazon. And I think if you go, if we look back, if you and I have this conversation a year from now, maybe 18 months from now, uh, the ripple effect of their choice uh, will will be measured in huge positive impacts. No question. No question. Well, uh, just kind of wrapping this up then, I mean, you're going to be undergoing these uh, infrastructure improvements over the next several years, widening the roads, like you said, uh, improving uh, transportation there at the Port Authority. Uh, yes. So despite the, the fact that we're living under the cloud of this pandemic, the future for the Little Rock Port is bright, isn't it? It absolutely is. We have not really slowed down. We're making capital investments. We're installing new road work, new rail work, new docks. Industries are choosing here. We continue to buy land. So, you know, we are we are very bullish on the economy out here, and we're continuing to grow and expand and fulfill our mission, which was to create opportunity for all of central Arkansas. So, yes, uh, the future is bright, and uh, we are moving forward at light speed. Exciting, exciting news. Well, thank you, uh, Brian Day, for visiting with us here for a few minutes on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, and all the best in the future. We look forward to seeing uh, these improvements develop over the next several years with you. Thank you, Ken. We'll talk soon. And speaking with Brian Day, the Executive Director of the Little Rock Port Authority, on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. That's all for this week's Arkansas AgCast. We'll return next Thursday with the latest news in Arkansas agriculture.